Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. Ramona Emerson is a Diné writer and filmmaker originally from Tehachi, New Mexico. She's also a University of New Mexico alum, graduating in 1997 with a degree in media arts. Emerson also has an MA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. She has made seven films, including The Mayors of Shiprock, which followed the path of some remarkable young Navajo people and their work in their community. Emerson has over two decades of experience working as a professional videographer, writer, and editor. She's been an Emmy nominee, a Sundance Native Lab Fellow, a Time Warner Storyteller Fellow, a Tribeca All Access grantee, and a WGBH Producer Fellow. She and her husband, Kelly Byers, run the production company Real, like Film Real, Indian Pictures in Albuquerque. Her most recent creative endeavor is the novel Shudder which follows Rita, a Diné woman who works as a forensic photographer capturing gruesome crime scenes for the Albuquerque Police Department and who also struggles with the ghosts from those crimes who want justice. It was long listed for the National Book Award. Like her main character, Rita, Emerson worked for years as a digital forensic photographer. I worked for a gentleman who was actually right down the street uh, at Goff Visual Services, and Mr. Goff hired me straight out of film school here at UNM. I could not find another job anywhere, and doing, I mean, I was willing to do anything. I'll run any camera, I'll run sound, I'll do anything, and this is before the film industry Mm -hmm. started. I mean, the scenes in this novel, particularly the very first one that opens that are pretty gruesome, how did you manage to do this kind of work for so long and deal with that kind of trauma? Well, usually when we got it as a private firm, it's just us processing it, making it bigger, getting it ready for court, um, doing depositions involved in the mm-hmm. cases. I didn't see as much gore as Rita does. I did see gore. I did see some pretty horrible things, but it wasn't on a daily basis. We'd get that stuff in maybe five or six times a year. Mm-hmm. And But for Rita, I went to... APD CSI school because they have a civilian program that you can enter once a year and it's a 16 week course and you learn everything about how APD processes crime scenes. So you learn everything from how to take fingerprints off of items, you know, how to process a scene, how to look at ballistics, you know, how to compare striations on a bullet, all of that stuff. And so I took that 16-week course when I had first enrolled in my MFA program because I could already see the story coming together. And the ghost part kind of came later when I had written maybe six or seven chapters and I realized that it wasn't interesting enough because there had to be an inner struggle that Rita was having beyond being a forensic photographer. And I thought, oh, that is so dumb. How come you didn't think about that right away? Um, Because I had written a few kind of spooky, scary stories in my writing workshop, and I started looking at those and figuring out how to work that in. And then that's how Shutter started to come out. It came to me in waves Mm -hmm. during the MFA program. So I think my MFA program was two years. So I finished that book in two years. In total, from when I started writing little short stories all the way through to when me and my editor, Juliet, had finished it was probably 10 years. I got 28 rejection letters from like every big publishing house in New York. I mean, it took that long for somebody, the right people, to get their hands on it and then to help me get it out there. 
How much of you is in Rita, who's the protagonist in Shudder, and how much did you draw from other people in your own imagination? I'd say it's a, probably a 50-50 mix of me and my imagination. Mm-hmm. I don't see ghosts. I don't speak with ghosts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that sounds like a good thing based on yeah. what I've read so far. In and I'm really glad because, yeah, <laughs> at least as far as Rita experiences it. I did work a lot of a lot of years doing forensics, and I had a lot of issues with police officers, with attorneys, you know, all the, the, the life struggles you go through when you do that kind of work, and yeah, that's in there. Mm-hmm. And uh but a lot of the stuff that goes on with her and her grandmother and coming, growing up on the reservation, a lot of that's very personal stories. I was very close to my grandmother. I wanted to make sure she was a really central part of the book because she's just, she's in just about almost everything I've written, mm-hmm. my grandma. And so I knew that she had to be a part of it. And, and so a lot of the Rita stuff, details have been changed. Her relatives in the book struggle with her choice of profession because of taboos in Diné culture around death. Did did you encounter that? I did. I think I freaked myself out most of the time because I would see something. And it, when, you, when you grow up and people are telling you that this is going to happen and you're going to die if you talk about death, it's kind of this taboo thing, like don't talk about it, otherwise you're asking for it. So I always had this fear growing up. And when I realized what kind of work we did, over there, because I really didn't understand what forensics meant, and f- at my first few assignments were really boring, so traffic patterns and things like really boring stuff. So I didn't realize it, but when I first got a, a first death scene that I processed, it freaked me out and it gave me nightmares. And I had to tell my grandma that I was kind of having nightmares, and she asked me why, and I had to tell her what I was doing, and she was not pleased, but she knew I needed the job. My boss would actually lend me video equipment on the weekends because I wanted to work on my documentaries and that's why I stayed there so long. And he let me use the studio to edit when I needed to and he was very supportive of my work outside of forensics. But yeah, I did take it home with me and you can't help it, when you, especially when you work and you're doing a case with a baby in it or a little kid or even an older person. I did a lot of cases on, out on Navajo Res or on the Pueblos and you think about those people forever. I never stopped thinking about those people I had cases with even 15 years ago. I wonder how they're doing and or how their kids are doing because that's the work we do. It's kind of hard to do that work sometimes. But after a while, it becomes like a quest. Like you do that work because you know that your work is important. And if you don't do the work, maybe these guys won't win their case. Among the other things Rita has to struggle with is this overwhelmingly male Anglo police force. <laughs> um, how does that inform who she is? Why did you want to explore that? It's a real reality for women who work in that field. When you work as a videographer, as a photographer, any woman who works in that field will tell you that you always get the stare down when you come in because mm. they don't expect a woman to be there. You show up and they're saying, well, he's going to be there and blah, blah, blah. He's going to show up. And then they come into the room and they're like, oh, you're the videographer. Well, um, hold on. You know, like you're not capable of doing that work. Uh, When I was coming out of film school here and trying to get in, the explanation to me was that, well, you need to get into the union if you want to get into any kind of production jobs. But you need to get experience to get into the union. How If you can't get a job without being in the union, how are you supposed to get experience to get into the union? And I realized right then I was not going to ever work below the line because I couldn't take the attitudes that people gave me trying to enter that part of the industry. 
as a woman, I didn't want to be looked down upon. I didn't want to be scolded. I didn't want to be, you know, and that's kind of how you get treated as a woman in the film industry on set when you're working for the police, when you're working for lawyers. They can be very rude to you and very nasty. And I wanted people to realize that that's what Rita deals with on a daily basis. It's colonialism stripped away <laughs> in its most purest and contemporary form, but mm -hmm. it's still what it still is what it is. So you come as a woman. If you come as a brown woman, it's even different, even more of a an issue. Than like, and I just, I don't know. I think after doing it for you know ten years, those lawyers and those police started to see me all the time, and they realized I wasn't going to go anywhere. And I did good work, and I eventually had their respect. But it took a long time for them to realize that, hey, she does good work. You know, maybe she's not stupid. If you just tuned in, this is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with UNM alum Ramona Emerson. She's a longtime filmmaker and writer, and she just published her first novel, Shudder. It follows the main character, Rita, a Diné woman who's a forensic photographer for the police who also struggles with ghosts talking to her, particularly those of victims of the crimes she has to document. Did you know you had a novel in you? No. I had no idea, because this was like my first rodeo, really. I mean, aside from a few short stories, I had nothing out there. Nobody knew me as a writer. So it was very strange. It was very strange. And I never in my wildest imagination would have told you that I would have wrote a novel or that I would want to do it mm -hmm. <laughs> because quite frankly I don't really like it so but it's it's happening <laughs> but is this now I understand this is going to be a trilogy it is so you got two more <laughs> two more <laughs> are you writing them now <laughs> I am I'm writing the second one right now and I haven't figured out what to write about the third um, but I figure in the middle of the second one it'll come to me mm -hmm. because I kind of understood what I was going to write the second book about about halfway into the first book. Um, so, yeah, it's already got a title. It's called Exposure. I don't have a lot of it written. I'm sorry to my editor. She <laughs> She's expecting at least a first draft by the end of December, and I just don't know if I can make it. I've had so many things going on. I'm trying. You're going to do a screenplay as well? I don't know. Mm, okay. I don't know. I, I feel kind of... Uh, burnt out <laughs> on the whole film industry. Really? Uh, yeah. And so people are asking me right away, like, oh, are you going to turn this into a film? And I'm kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to. After 25 years of doing it and not seemingly getting anywhere, mm. I don't know. I'm distancing myself from that whole yeah. part of my life. I have documentaries to finish. I have three and a docu-series I'm working on. And I'm really concentrating on those because... I'm seriously thinking about like those being our my last things that I do um, in the film industry and uh, getting out. What do you think writing has allowed you to do that perhaps you couldn't do with film? One of the cool things about writing is that you don't have to worry about your budget or <laughs> what actor you're going to get to play who and so, so and so and how you'd shut down a freeway in Albuquerque for 12 hours while you filmed a scene. I mean, if I was writing this as a screenplay, that's all I'd be thinking about. Like, how could I afford this? But when I write it as fiction, I can do whatever I want. And it doesn't matter how much it's going to cost if they turn it into a movie or whatever. For me, what is important is that the story is going well, that I create a good representation of myself and my community, 
you know, because I wrote it for them. I wrote it for Tohatchi. I wrote it for Navajos because I wanted them to have a story that came from us, that came from our space. And for so many years, we haven't had that. We've had people who don't come from our place telling stories about us and kind of turning us into mystical creatures and weirdness. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just felt like this was my time to do something for the Navajo people, give them their stories back and uh, give them their voice. I want them to recognize their own experiences in my words and to find that connection. So for me, that's what's so cool about the written word is that you could do that. There's something about having people from your community read your book and be excited to know it's out in the world that is just so much more satisfying to me than it getting into a film festival or some gatekeeper finally letting me in the gate. <laughs> What's been the reaction in your community to the book? People like it. Actually, Dr. Danette Dale, who's mm-hmm. here at UNM. Yeah, I've um, interviewed her on the show, actually. Oh, awesome. She's one of my dearest mentors. And uh, when this book came out, I asked her to, to review it for the Navajo Times. She's also from Tohatchi. We're from the same community. And so I was so scared to give it to Dr. D. I was like, oh, I hope she doesn't hate it, you know, or like call me and say, I can't believe you wrote this book. But she encouraged me to go and take the book to a Gallup flea market and to do a signing out at Ellis Town Trading Post, mm-hmm. both of which I was really scared about because I didn't know how people would react to what I was writing. But when we went there, Dr. D, of course, was super awesome and was telling everybody to come get over here and buy this book. So, you know, Danae woman wrote it. She's from Tohatchi. And people were like, oh, okay. They came walking over and they were interested and they bought the books and... It was just something very special about that day. And a lot of people came down to the trading post after that Mm -hmm. and, you know, bought books and we did a little signing there. But it was so good to see them happy to meet me and not freaked out because they could read the book. They knew what they could read the sleeve. They knew what it was about. Nobody got freaked out. I didn't get lectured. (laughs) You know, nobody, (laughs) nobody chased after me with a pitchfork. It was actually really like one of the best experiences I've ever had with my work because it's just and it's I think it's just that idea of your own people embracing you and telling you it's okay that you wrote this and we got to admit we kind of like this stuff because you know we like horror movies we like scary movies too and you know it's just good to see somebody from our community doing it Hmm. so there were a lot of people actually from Tohachi that came to the flea market and bought the book well, it's yeah. I was going to ask you because your first medium has always been film up until now, but how did you decide that you wanted to be a storyteller and you wanted to follow that path? My mom and my grandma and I always had a real big passion for watching movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear stories about how I went to Godfather Part Two and Exorcist when I was an infant. I don't remember that, <laughs> but I don't. I, and I didn't cry or fuss. And they were like, oh, you know, she likes being in the movie theater. And my grandma took me to the movies all the time. I forced her to take me to see The Shining when I was like seven. So you do like horror. Oh, yeah. I love horror. <laughs> and my mom really loves horror, too. We watched some of the goriest movies ever. <laughs> I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre with my mom. Like, we've seen it all. Uh, my grandma is a little more on the action side. She kind of likes Clint Eastwood and, you know, um, 
Charles Bronson. Also, we watched a lot of bad John Wayne movies because she likes to watch, you know, old school stuff like, you know, the the Sons of Katie Elder or the Cowboys or, you know, The Searcher is one of the worst movies ever. But she, but you know, but she'd like, <laughs> and we'd like to watch it and make fun of, you know, mm-hmm. Richard Widmark and mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. So it was just, I think, that whole idea of telling stories and watching films and reading books and, um, you know, even telling stories to each other, you know, around the table. We always, oh, I told you that one story about, you know, it was just something that always happened. And my grandma always had the greatest stories that she would tell us about some of the most outlandish stuff. We were like, no way that could have happened. My grandma was like, I told you. And then my grandma taught me to read and writing little stories when I was in like second and third grade was something I liked to do, they tell me. The VCR was like the best invention ever for the res. <laughs> um, every film in that damn video store rental place trailer down at the end of the res, we'd seen every film in there a hundred times. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with writer and filmmaker Ramona Emerson, a graduate of UNM, about her new novel, Shudder, and her two decades in filmmaking. What was your experience like doing film school here at UNM? I knew I wanted to study film, but the film department didn't exist. Hmm. You could minor in it, mm-hmm. but you couldn't major in it. At that time, in the 90s, late 90s, the degree was still theoretical. There was You could only take like 15 or 18 production credits towards your graduation. So that tortured me. I was so like bummed that we couldn't do more production or learn more about that side of it. All we did, seemingly to me, was write papers about Sergei Eisenstein and <laughs> Ziga Vertov. And it's like, I could tell you all about Russian and European <laughs> cinema from 1930s, 40s, and 50s, but I, you know, I had a hard time taking that in and, and learning film that way. But I also attended school here when uh, Gus Blaisdell was teaching and when Dr. Susan Dever was here. And those two instructors changed my life. Gus Blaisdell's classes on horror and the westerns and I mean it was theoretical but it taught me everything you needed to know about being a filmmaker before you even touched a camera and if you could talk about it at length and write a crazy you know 18 page theoretical paper about you know the reason why this western was so awesome then you could do anything you could make any film you wanted and Susan Dever was the same she introduced me to international films and to films done by Native people that I had never seen, like Victor Masfayesva's film, you know. Anyway, but it, it created all this dialogue, and it made me really think about how I wanted to tell stories as a filmmaker and responsibilities, uh, what you show and what you don't show, and, you know, the importance of the theoretical parts of your films and, and how you frame and, and how you put characters into motion. It was hard for me. I barely made it through. I just was kind of despondent, I guess, when I graduated. Were there any other like, Native students with you? No. Oh, and okay. I was like the only woman in film class most of the time. Oh, wow. How have you chosen the stories uh, that you wanted to do for your films? Well, I think the stories find me. Mm-hmm. At just about every case, every documentary I've done. I did one about my mom. I told her I was going to make that movie on my way to pitch it to National Geographic. <laughs> I was literally driving to Santa Fe and I was like, mom, I'm going to make this documentary about you. And she's like, what? And uh, she was like, why? And I told her, well, because you moved back home and nobody's nice to you because you've lived away from their dress for so long and I'm making a film about it. And she's like, all right, it sounds boring to me, but all right. 
<laughs> Why did you want to explore that? Because I was just kind of enraged by how people were for treating my mom and you know she my grandma died and like now then nobody wanted to talk to her and everybody was spreading lies and rumors about her and typical small town stuff and I just was like you know what I'm going to say something about it and I'm going to make a film because they should be ashamed of themselves mm-hmm. my first documentary was called The Last Trek Mm-hmm. And it was about uh, my grandmother's neighbor. And we'd been afraid of her forever when I was a kid because she had sheep. And my grandma used to tell us, don't go down there, especially after dark, because she'll think somebody's trying to get into her sheep and she'll shoot you. But after my grandma died, I met her in person and she was the sweetest lady. And she was going to retire from sheep herding. She had had enough. And she had like 28, 29 head. Anyway, so she allowed us to follow her up to her summer grazing grounds two years in a row. The last two years she had a herd. And um, we became very close. And that's just something that happened. I just, my mom was like, here, meet Helena. Remember, she lives down. And I was like, oh, my God, you're the one that was going to shoot us. And she laughed. It was just me. I think my reaction to losing my grandma and then meeting this lovely woman who kind of took the grandma role on for the next three years with me and then we made a film about her during those three years and got very close hidden talents came to us because i met grand bale and um there was a some funding that came to the shiprock performing arts center and they called nana about becker and i and asked us if we'd make a film about an artist in shiprock painting this painting um that he had a dream about he had this dream about this navajo girl found a piano in the middle of the desert and walked right up to it and knew how to play it while she was out there herding her sheep. And Nanaba and I immediately knew we had to film that dream sequence. Like that was the big, I mean, they wanted us to make a documentary about him painting the painting of the woman, of the little girl, but we were like, oh, but that dream sequence. So it was kind of a hybrid documentary, you know, narrative because we have this underlying narrative of the girl herding sheep and then finding the, the piano and then being able to play it and then she's in a concert hall and she plays this thing. Meanwhile, that amazing. We're watching the artist paint the painting mm-hmm. of the girl. So he was actually on set, the artist, and was able to look at the last frame of the film and that's exactly what he painted. That's what's hanging in the lobby at the Shiprock Performing Arts Center now, that painting. And we lost James two years ago, so it's even more bittersweet that we were able to make that film before he passed. That film and that moment in time is forever ingrained in Shiprock. Um, that was very important to us. And when we were making that film, Graham Bayal was our camera assistant. He was my director's assistant during the film because he was thinking about making films. And he started talking to us about his community work. And I was like, how old are you? And he was like, oh, I'm 17. And I was just like, well, I'm totally taken aback by you. I want to come to this meeting of these kids that you you know, you got together. He's like, okay, we meet on Mondays, whatever. So Kelly and I went, no cameras, just went to their Monday meeting and we just were floored by how mature they were, the work that they were doing in their community. I mean, they had meeting minutes. They were taking notes. They had everybody's contact information. And there was probably like 25 kids there, like ready to do the work. And that's where Mayors of Shiprock came from. So like I say, they, the stories just kind mm-hmm. of appear to me and I have to go do it. And the same goes for this docu-series. I've been working on that for probably 10 years. It's such a difficult um, project to work on. I've been working on it 
here and there when I could afford it because I never had funding for it. But it's also a very dangerous film to make. So I have, I've had to take hiatus from making it a couple of times just because it was dangerous. Was it about? Violence against Navajo people in border towns. Mm. And, and each episode, we're doing four episodes as a different town. So we're doing Albuquerque, Gallup. Farmington and Winslow and um, farm our Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, so each town has a different kind of rhythm and and base to their racism, but it's all the same. So each town, we've had to investigate different kinds of racism that happens to people here. It's been a difficult thing to research and investigate, and people get angry when you ask them these questions and you they know the work that you're doing and you're out there exposing things that sometimes they don't want you talking about and uh, trying to talk to you know legislators and officials and police officers and it's not easy it's mm. not an easy job to do and it's not easy to keep it balanced it's not easy to just not get angry about what's going on and the stuff that you're undigging and seeing every day it's hard we're also making Through Her Lens, which is a working title right now, but it's about Maria Varela. And I don't know if anyone knows Maria mm -hmm. Varela, but she was a photographer in uh, in SNCC during the 1960s. Oh. Not only was she Latina, but she was a woman working as a photographer for SNCC, creating all of the new uh, voting registration educational materials for a lot of the sharecroppers. And she talks about how her work is all about what we were just talking about. It's like they can put all these white people into the voting registration pamphlets and hand it out to the sharecroppers, but they're like, that's not for us. Mm -hmm. You know, voting is not our thing, obviously, you know. But if she took photographs of them and their own communities doing work and, and being a part of that community and use that in the educational materials, then they were most likely to, more likely to see that they had the right to vote. And that they could vote, and it, you know, and they gave them the edu educational materials to do that. Maria did that. So, what has it been like trying to bring these voices to the screen that we rarely get a chance to hear? It sounds like <laughs> there have been a lot of challenges. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's hard to get your work out there. Even now, when we hear this like hunger, that's great, and I'm glad to see that. Yeah. I'm glad to see people finally interested in listening to Indigenous voices. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of young people out there doing great work and uh, a lot of young people telling great stories and doing, writing great books. And I'm glad to see it. You know, maybe I'm just too, I was too early for it. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, because I've been, uh, it's hard. You usually get your films, like the films I discussed are, you know, they'll get into film festivals, like native film festivals. It's hard to get into regular film festivals uh, because they figure it's like native content. You know, I feel like you get pigeonholed into the native content category. There's a certain kind of story I think they expect from you as a native film, or at least that's what they used to think. Mm -hmm. Like we did Mayors of Shiprock. We got denied from every every indigenous filmmaker or film festival that I'd gotten in before with every other film that I thought was really bad compared to the Mayors of Shiprock. There was like only one film festival, the L.A. Skins Fest. And they actually gave us best documentary at the film festival, but it was like the only one or two or three that they got into. That one kind of broke my heart because I was so invested in it and I was so hoping that people would be inspired by their story and because it's a powerful story. It is. It was very inspiring. I'm wondering if do people not want to see inspiring solutions thing? They want to see the harder <laughs> stuff. Yeah, uh, the poverty porn. Yeah. That's what sells. Mm. They want to see the poverty. They want to see 
these kids have an alcoholic father. You know, they want to see them having a drug problem that they get over. They want to see that narrative arc. I mean, when you're getting funded and they're talking to you about that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, that's what they talk to you about. It's like, well, where's that arc? Where's that thing? Where's that Sisyphean moment or whatever it mm-hmm. is, like that arc, that European model of how storytelling is supposed to go. And my argument was always like, well, there's not just one way to tell a story. And I don't have to show you that these kids live in poverty for you to know that they live in poverty. I'm not interested in dwelling on that. I'm I'm dwelling on the good things they're doing. And every single one of our films is that way. I don't talk about poverty. I talk about how these people don't have any money and they struggle every day. That's not about that. It's about how they rise above. It's how they do this great work, even though they don't have the resources. That's fantastic. I had one more question mm-hmm. for you. Uh, just a personal question. I was curious on your Facebook profile why you have Kathy Bates from Misery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's co- that's supposed to be my my inspiration that I should be writing. <laughs> Oh, okay. So she's giving you that look like, why aren't you writing? Why are I? I she's going to come hobble you. I think, yes. I think I should actually have that picture framed and hang it over oh my, my in, my, in the bedroom so I can look at her every day and say, five pages, Ramona, at least five today. You're going to do five. Maybe you can do 10, maybe, but at least five. So that's why. Well, Ramona Emerson, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been Absolutely. great. Thanks for having me in and. Um, Good luck on finishing the next book and all those films. (laughs) Thank you so much. I need it. (laughs) That was writer and filmmaker Ramona Emerson. You can find this and all our episodes of University Showcase at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. (laughs) 